Sunday morning, uh, we discovered together that there's no neutral reaction to the rise of God's anointed. As more and more people became aware of how God was working through David, people inevitably ended up in two very different places. Some loved David, and some hated him. We related that to the fact that when people come to terms, really, with who Jesus is, there is the same reaction. When you actually come to see who he claims to be, the priority that he demands, then people fall out with no neutral reaction. There is either a deep, abiding, life-altering love for Jesus that grows, or there is a desire to have nothing to do with him. This morning, we'll bring in our trek through 1 Samuel a further continuation of that same idea. And actually, it will only intensify as we cover a span of uh, some 66 verses. I hope you brought your lunch with you. As we consider these verses together, some questions you might want to ask right here on the front end are, uh, number one, can David outlast Saul's murderous jealousy? Now, if you've read the rest of the story, you you, of course, know the answer to that. But would you suspend that answer you already know and just consider where David is at this point? And if you aren't aware yet of where the story's going, then don't ask the person next to you because they might spoil it. The second question I would have for us is, where is God in the crises of life? David faces tremendous crises. Perhaps you are in the midst of one. If not, be encouraged. You will be in the future. But where is God in the crises of life? So number one, can David outlast Saul's murderous jealousy? And number two, where is God in the crises of life? Let's find out as Renell comes to read for us first seven verses of 1 Samuel 19, 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 7. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine." And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. 
And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Thank you, brother. In, in chapter 18, Saul attempted to essentially manipulate David into situations in which it was likely that the Philistines would kill him. But here, as we turn from the 18th chapter to the 19th chapter, Saul's covert, behind-the-scenes deception give way to bold-faced public commands to kill David. It's easy to miss that, but when you place the two chapters together, it stands out very strongly. As King Saul's jealousy and envy of David grew, so did his willingness to go deeper and deeper into sin to get what he wanted. There is, of course, a strong warning here for us. By God's grace, we must deal with our jealousy and envy, or it will only grow. And our willingness to do things we might never have imagined doing will only expand. In this chapter and the next, King Saul and his envy and jealousy will grow to the point that it will literally consume his whole life. The tentacles of this covetousness wrap themselves tightly around everything. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In, in verse 1, the king, the king who was supposed to lead and protect the Israelites, commands his son to murder a fellow Israelite. Since Jonathan and David were close friends, Saul knew that Jonathan would have a unique vantage point in access to David. And so Saul sought to use that access with murderous intent. The extent to which human beings go to exalt our own desires over against the needs and what's best for fellow human beings is stunning. And we live with that reality every day. That's part of why our relationships as a church family are so important. It's part of why they're such a powerful testimony to the world of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we serve and love and defer and forgive and stick together even when it's hard, then we give evidence of the God who transforms people. We give a demonstration of the fact that we're being changed by God and thus can now love each other rather than take advantage of one another. Now thankfully, as you saw, Jonathan did not obey his father. When an authority tells us to do something, we ought to do it. We ought to do it except when an obedience to a human authority would cause disobedience to God's authority. You see, God's authority always trumps derivative human authority. No pun intended there. Instead of killing David, I'm enjoying watching as the waves of that fall around the room. I won't, I won't do it next hour. 
Instead of killing David, Jonathan warned him. And he went out of his way to do so. But not only did he warn David, he did something much more bold. He went back to his father and interceded for David by attempting to persuade him not to harm him. If you let your eyes glance again over verses 4 and 5, you'll see that that's the record of Jonathan's courageous intercession. Interestingly, he, he employed theological, moral, and rational arguments to try to convince Saul. All three of those are present. He is, in a sense, pulling out all the stops in his attempt to persuade his father. And it worked. Incidentally, I, I think there's a great application here for us. When, when we notice another church member seems to be right on the cusp of some major sin, or when we're asked to be a part of and participate in something that is clearly, overtly wrong, and the last thing we should do is keep quiet. That is, in fact, not at all loving and helpful. Sometimes the most important thing to do is to speak up and to use everything at hand to try to convince and persuade. If a son can confront his father, certainly we can confront each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I wonder what harm we might have been able to prevent in each other's lives if we loved each other enough to risk awkward, difficult conversations. This is part of God's good gift in giving us each other. And so as I've said many, many, many times over the last 10 years, my life is open to you. Please watch over me. Correct me. Confront me. Help me walk with Jesus as I try to help you do the same. And may we find in the years ahead that there are filled, we are filled with many, many more Jonathans and Jonathanettes than, than we are today. For this would be good for us and good for this city that God's planted us in where the need for the gospel is so great. In God's name, Saul vowed not to kill David. And then the two get reconciled. It's amazing. But will it last? Is this a short, momentary few minutes of peace? Let's find out. Look with me at verse 8. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. As he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear in the wall. And David fled and escaped 
that night. Inevitably, it seems, as the book of 1 Samuel has shown, peace didn't last. War resumed. And so David went back to the battlefield, and as had already happened, God gave him victory. And because David went to the battlefield, and because God gave him victory, then Saul's jealousy grew. More success for David occasioned more temptation for Saul. The question, of course, if we had just read half of that paragraph, would be, would would Saul's jealousy burn anew? Or would his commitment to God to make no harm to David stay and stick? Well, friends, as is often the case with us, the commitment didn't last. The repentance, if you will, wasn't real. When there is genuine repentance, then there will be fruit in keeping with that repentance. And Saul didn't demonstrate that. As the angel brought the judgment of God on Saul yet again, unfortunately, Saul chose jealousy. And by choosing jealousy, he chose like the floodwaters raised the banks of a river. Those murderous intents overflowed his heart again. Now, don't miss the irony in this paragraph. If you look at verse 8, you'll see that it says, David struck the Philistines with a great blow. In contrast, verse 10 shows that Saul could only strike the wall. Even while David is sitting calmly playing the lyre, Saul couldn't harm him. You see, God was with David. And so David escaped. God was not with Saul. So Saul was incapable of anything. All he could do is strike the wall. Now where would David go? He's been placed as what we would call today a general in the army. And he's often in the palace, but now he's had to flee. So where would he go? Well, he goes home. Look with me starting at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michelle, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michelle let David down through the window, and he fled and escaped. There's that word again. Michelle took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Do any of you have a pillow of goat's hair? That's nasty. And verse 14, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, uh, Michelle, 
Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michelle answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Remember David's wife, Michelle, is also Saul's daughter. So we have Saul's son intervening to save him, and now we have Saul's daughter intervening to save David. So Saul's daughter is trying to save her husband from her father. And you thought your relationship with your in-laws was complicated. David went home only to discover Saul's hitmen were there to kill him in the morning. And so what did his wife do? Well, frankly, she used some rather unconventional methods. She snuck David out the back window and made it look like he was in bed. And then Saul was so impatient, he couldn't wait till the morning. And then Michelle lied, both to the soldiers and then to him. This is the first in several extremely unusual paragraphs in this chapter. I think it's important at this moment to remind us that 1 Samuel is what's called a historical narrative. What that means is, it's a story written about things that happened in history. It records for us what happened in order to teach us theological truths about God that are timeless. Therefore, it's not intended to demonstrate that everything a character does in a story was the moral action that ought to have been taken. It simply records for us what happened. You understand the difference? Now certainly she intended good. As perhaps as you meet in gospel communities in tonight or in this coming week, or as you get together with other brothers and sisters in discipling relationships, you might consider talking about, was Michelle's deception appropriate? As I said, certainly she intended it for good. She lied first to protect David, and second to protect herself. Are those different? Is it ever morally acceptable to deceive if it's for a greater good? And how does power play into that? In other words, if a madman is in authority, is it still wrong for the weaker to deceive if it's for the aid of the common good? I encourage you to talk through that together, comparing this chapter of the Bible with other parts of the Bible that speak more directly to lying and deception. Because this chapter doesn't actually answer these questions. That's not what it's here for. The chapter is not in the Scriptures to tell us about whether or not we should, in any extraordinary circumstance, deceive. So I won't spend any more time on it, but it does in fact raise the issue. 
I encourage you to talk it through together. Either way, the point is that David's life was preserved, that he was protected. He was protected again through what is certainly a highly unusual set of circumstances. Now remember with me, he can't go to work. He's not safe at the palace anymore. And he can't go home. There are people stationed outside ready to kill him. If you can't go to work and you can't go home, where do you go? Now consider this. For the entire rest of the book of 1 Samuel, David will be on the run. This lasts not months, but years. Not the sermon series. David's fleeing. He's on the run for years. We have some members of the Church on Mill family who are from places where there are, in fact, refugees who are on the run. But most of us have absolutely no idea what that would be like. Not safe at work, not safe at home, not safe anywhere. Imagine living like that. Let's read on and see where he goes next. Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Samuel had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Rhinoth. And so it was told Saul, behold, David is at Rhinoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent his messengers to David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, The Spirit of God came on the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is at Siku. And he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Rhinoth in Ramah. And he went there to Ranah in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came on him also. And he went prophesying until he came to Rhinoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off all his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day and all the night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets. Now, you can't say I didn't warn you. There are some weird things in this chapter. I should have timed this where sabbatical started today. Now, David fled from his home and went to find the wise old prophet Samuel. You can hear David's thoughts. Maybe Samuel can help. Maybe Samuel can do something to get this over with. Jonathan had helped. Michelle had helped. 
But Saul's commitment to murder David had only deepened. Perhaps Samuel, perhaps Samuel could bring this to an end. Maybe Saul would respect Samuel enough to leave David alone. Now, this makes logical sense, doesn't it? But as we've experienced, the fury of envy is hardly rational. Saul heard where David was, and so he sent people there to kill him. But this time, God intervened directly. Not through Jonathan, not through Michelle, not even through Samuel. God himself intervened through the Spirit. As the messengers neared Samuel and David, perhaps even pulling out their swords, the Spirit fell on them. And supernaturally, their evil intent was overcome, and instead they prophesied. Now, frankly, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I don't know what they prophesied about. But the point being made is that God himself made sure they couldn't harm David. But even that was not enough to deter Saul. Finally, he reached the point where he had had it. His minions couldn't get it done, so he decided to go do it himself. Now notice again, if you'll glance back through that paragraph, the details the narrator is careful to point out. And I'm not sending you on a wild goose chase. This is really amazing. In verse 22, it says that Saul came to Ramah. It goes on to say that he asked for directions to Samuel. And that he asked for the directions at the well. And then God caused Saul to prophesy with a group of prophets. And then, in verse 24, the people respond with a question. Is Saul among the prophets? Does any of that sound familiar? Now, I don't mean from five minutes ago. Does any of that sound like something that's already happened in the book? Well, it's been a long time. But though the circumstances are different, this exact same series of events happened in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The exact same thing. Saul couldn't find his donkeys, and he ended up in Ramah. And standing at the same well as the one in chapter 19, Saul asked for directions. Directions to find Samuel, a little later, God made Saul prophesy with a group of prophets. And chapter 10, verse 12, the people responded, Is Saul among the prophets? Hmm, what does this mean? They're the same exact order of events. This cannot be an accident. This has the divine hand of God written all over it. The meaning is located in the spot where these two accounts differ. Because see, there's there's all these things that are exactly the same. 
but there is something that's not. In the first occurrence, Saul is appointed king by Samuel. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, empowering him for the work of being king. But here in the second occurrence, here in chapter 19, the Spirit comes upon Saul, but this time he is disempowering Saul for the work of being king. Saul stood there naked. Some of us want to laugh at that, and others are uncomfortable by it. But it's not an unnecessary detail. You see, Saul's nakedness is the disrobing of his royal robe, and therefore, the disrobing of his power and authority. He stands there naked, covered only in shame. His authority, his power, his anointing have all been taken from him. What was given to him in the first set of occurrences is undone in the second. Saul's helpless. He can't harm David because God has kept David for safekeeping. Why? Well, we'll spend quite a few minutes thinking about the why. But in terms of the difference between them, Saul was an arrogant imposter. And David was a man who knew God. That's the difference. God protects his anointed. That's what 1 Samuel chapter 19 and 1 Samuel 20 are, all, are about. 66 verses can be squeezed down into four words. God protects his anointed. Through a diverse array of people and certainly bizarre circumstances in which some of the things leave us scratching our heads, God protected his anointed. So it doesn't matter that Saul, the king, wanted David, the shepherd boy, dead. It doesn't matter because God is the one with all the power. Saul couldn't make it happen. God protects his anointed. Now why? Why did God intervene in such dramatic ways? We have likely all who follow Christ found ourselves in some crises and cried out to God for help. And while he may in fact have helped, I doubt you saw any of these kinds of things. So why did God intervene in such dramatic ways here? I'm glad you asked. In, in one sense, God intervened for David because God is the God of shocking reversals. We've watched it through the entire book. God has taken the weak and made them strong. God has taken the strong and made them weak. Over and over and over and over. First Samuel tells us this and then demonstrates it and gives us exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C because this is such a critical part of how things work in the kingdom of God. 
those who are powerful and great in their own strength in the world cannot muster or buy real greatness in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work. God is the God of shocking reversals. Chapter 19 is just one more example that God topples the proud and lifts up the humble. But more broadly, if we look across the landscape of the entire biblical story, Genesis to Revelation, then we could say this, God kept David alive because it was his will for David to reign as king of Israel. That's why God preserved him. And he wanted David to reign because God would later send Jesus to take the throne of David and reign forever. This is God's purpose. You see, God has always, always had a plan to redeem a people for himself. So, this people would be a people who come from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And he would rescue this people out of sin and deliver them back into a right relationship with him. And to do so, he chose to use David to sit on the throne of Israel in order to point forward to Jesus, who now sits on the throne over not merely Israel, but all. David was the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Therefore, every one of Saul's failed attempts to kill David is a testimony to God's desire and power to save you. But remember, at this point, David couldn't have known that. Just like God only lights the way for your next step, which is sometimes maddening, isn't it? David didn't know where this whole thing would go. And so, friends, remember, he's literally running for his life. He couldn't possibly have understood he would become the Old Testament king who would most clearly point forward to the eternal reign of Jesus. He didn't know. Now, I'm supposed to go all the way through chapter 20 this morning. But I want to just summarize it for you and then read something else to close us because of the time. In chapter 20, guess what happens? Saul tries to kill David. Jonathan helps him again. But this time, Saul is so angry that he tries to kill Jonathan. Oh, the irony. It's Father's Day, and I'm talking about a text where a father tries to kill his son. So here's the Father's Day message for all the fathers in the room. Don't try to kill your kids. Now in chapter 20, God delivered David yet again. But as we try to wrap this up, Remember, we see looking back, and we see all that God did for David. But David woke up every day 
with a death threat hanging over his head. How did David process all that he was experiencing? Remember, he's gone from a blue-collar shepherd boy to the future king of Israel. And that movement from blue-collared shepherd boy to the next king of Israel brought upon him hardships he never, ever, ever would have had. It's precisely in God's designation, God's choosing of him, that so many of his problems began. How did he think through that? It's only after God promised a special place for him that things got rough for David. Uh, God, where are you? Have you left me? I thought you would make things better. Friend, have you asked those questions? One author I read put it this way, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you're successfully past your trial, but that you're still on your feet in the middle of it. Friend, God loves you. And he does not mean for you to see the presence of trials as the absence of his love. Are you still on your feet? Then praise God, for he is holding you fast. How did David process this? Well, chapter 20, verse 3, he told Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. One tiny step. And yet, chapter 19 and 20 tell us nothing beyond that of the inner contours of David's soul or the thoughts and doubts that may have plagued his mind or the anxiety that could have weighed down his chest. And yet... Psalm 59 does tell us. You see, Psalm 59 was written the night that David fled out of his bedroom window and went to hide. And I want to encourage you to just listen to me read it, and then I'll be done. If you didn't turn there already, don't. Just hear it. Hear it the faith of a man who was but a step from death. And by hearing, may we be encouraged and emboldened in whatever we're facing. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Fierce men...
deliver me from those who work evil, bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see you, Lord of hosts, our God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs, prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, who will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, you will meet me. God will let me look in triumph. Kill them not, lest they forget people. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be trampled in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs, praying and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been my fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love.